Well, good morning, Elkdale Baptist Church. Good to be with you again and share with you. I wonder if you had the kind of experience that uh, the Coleman household had a number of years ago. Uh, a number of years ago, when the kids were small, one of the greatest decisions that we had to make on Sunday was, what are we going to wear to church? All right, I can see some of your smiles already in here, that maybe you've had the same thing. Well, we had a decision we had to make early on with the three children uh, in our home, and that was if, if the church wanted a happy pastor and family, we had to decide about what to wear to church on Saturday night, all right? So Saturday night, we had to make those decisions. So Arlinda would, would work with the, with the girls, and uh, when she was working with the girls, they were 13 months apart, and so one would be outgrowing, this, the dresses were getting a little short, blouses a little tight, whatever, and so that was Carla, so those clothes got passed on to Kristen, and Carla would get the new clothes. Kristen got old enough. She didn't want hand-me-downs, all right? So she had to have new clothes as well. And so we had, to, had this uh, situation going on all the time about making sure we had the right clothes on Saturday night. Now, for Brent, our son, and uh, he was four years older than the, the, uh, our first uh, daughter, Carla, and so he was growing so fast, we bought him two pairs of pants, multiple shirts. He just alternated every week for church, okay? That's how we did it. And, of course, then he couldn't remember what he wore last Sunday. You know, he couldn't remember what shirt or whatever. So we had that discussion going on. And then we had Arlinda. All right, she's just like the rest of you mamas. She used her money to buy clothes for the kids. And so she would be a little frustrated. What am I going to wear to church? I'm not sure I remember what I wore last Sunday. Do I have an amen? All right, for some of you that you've had to go through this again. If the church wanted a happy pastor and family, we had to make that decision on Saturday night, what to wear to church. Now you say, now, pastor, what about you? I was, my, my part was easy. Because, see, I, I, back in those days when we wore suits all the time, I had my suits all in a row. I'd wear this suit, and as soon as I finished that night, I'd put it back here and start moved them down. I mean, that was easy, right? I always, always knew what I was going to wear next because I moved my suits. And so they were always in a row. I, I might change color shirt or I might wear a different tie, whatever. But it was easy for me. What to wear to church could be an issue in our home just like it is in your home. But I want to apply it in a different way this morning. What are we to wear to church when it comes to being in here? Not the outward clothing, but what about the inside? Now, I'm indebted to um, Ralph Langley. Ralph Langley was longtime pastor of First Baptist Huntsville. I heard him preach years ago on this passage, on this subject. I remember the title. I remember a few of the points. I don't remember anything else about the sermon but I took that years later, and I developed it and was able to share it. In fact, we're going to be talking about Capernaum. I got to preach it right near Capernaum a few years ago when I was in the Holy Lands. So I want to talk about this morning about what to wear to church. We're going to be looking at a passage in Mark chapter 2 about five men and what they wore to church. And they are a wonderful example of what we need to wear to church every day. Sunday. So open your Bibles, Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12, what to wear to church, and the first piece of clothing that we need to wear is the clothing of urgency. We need to wear the clothing of urgency. So let's look in our Bibles in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. A few days later, 
when Jesus again, again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Well, let's stop there just a moment, make sure we got the context. A few days later, it hadn't been that long that Jesus had started his public ministry. Mark chapter 1 tells us about when he was baptized by John the Baptist, and then he began to go out and began to preach, and uh, then we find him healing. He goes into the synagogues, and in one of those synagogues, he, he is uh, preaching. He delivers a man from demon possession. We also learn from chapter 1 that he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And then we find him going out from Capernaum. He had been in Capernaum, but he had such a large following. He now goes out into all the villages around Galilee, and he is preaching, he is healing, he is teaching. And then toward the end of chapter 1, he heals a leper. There's a man with leprosy, and he heals him. So when it says uh, just, a, just a few days before, that's what was happening. Or a few days after, that's what happened. He had just healed this leper, and he goes to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is on the northwest bank of the Sea of Galilee. It's a little off the bank now because the, the Sea of Galilee has receded in its water content over the last 2,000 years. Still an issue every year, losing three to four feet every year of water. And so back then, it was pretty well close to the seashore itself. Capernaum uh, was the headquarters of Jesus while he was in Galilee. Remember, he was from Nazareth. Nazareth was less than a day's walk away from Capernaum. But he was not well received in Nazareth, as we read about in some of the other gospel accounts. And so he finds himself in Capernaum. And it says there that he has, has come home. Uh, possibly the home we're talking about here, coming home to the people because he felt more comfortable, felt more welcomed, but also the fact that he may have been in Peter's home and that this, what we're about to read, probably happened in Peter's home and that, Peter, uh, that Jesus may have stayed with Peter and Andrew in Capernaum. If you were to go to Capernaum right now, the uh, archaeologists have designated one of the archaeological sites, we have seen it, uh, where possibly Peter lived. There's a lot of reasons for that, but even if it wasn't, so we know that it's in that vicinity, the home of Peter. And so that's where Jesus is. Notice in verse 2, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. They gathered in this house. They gathered in the room. And uh, can you imagine if it was Peter's house, what Peter would have said? wonder what Peter was thinking. What is all these people doing crowding into my home? But the people were crowded in. There were many people who could get inside, and those homes weren't that big. There were windows. They probably were uh, trying to get, the, uh, get a position at the window. They were trying to uh, jam the doors. And so there's a large crowd. And what was Jesus doing? Jesus was preaching the word. Now, yes, we know his ultimate mission was to go to the cross and die for our sin. That would be the ultimate mission. But part of what Jesus was to do was to preach the word. Go back to chapter 1, verse 15. He came preaching, repent and believe in the good news. Believe in the gospel. Believe in me. Trust in me. I am the answer. He would later say, I am the way. And so all of this is a part of what Jesus is doing. He is preaching the word, folks. He's preaching the word of God. 
And what was going on at this particular time was they were having church. They were having church in the house. It was a house church. But they were having church and praising God and worshiping God. Now, while all this is going on, we read in verse 3 and 4. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So picture this, Jesus is preaching the word. He is in the house. The place is crowded with folks. And so he is preaching. And all of a sudden, the attention goes to the ceiling because they start seeing some dirt falling, some sand falling. Some of the ceiling towns tiles are falling. All of a sudden, Jesus is upstaged. Possibly the first time ever that Jesus was upstaged in his preaching. And there's all the attention is now at the ceiling. Jesus has stopped preaching. And in the, in the ceiling there, they, you see maybe, maybe a, a pole is poked through. And then all of a sudden you see a hand that comes through. And they begin to peel back. One hand, two hands, maybe multiple hands. And they're pulling back the ceiling. And as they are pulling back, all of a sudden, there's a, there's a large enough hole where four faces peer looking down. Again, can you imagine if it's Peter's home, he's probably shouting, what are you guys doing up there? And so here, Peter is, is, is maybe is speaking. They're all watching. These guys peering down, they don't say a word. All of a sudden, they disappear. And then lower down through the ceiling they first see a pallet of some sort. Then they see the ropes that are attached to each end of the pallet. And as it's continued to be lowered, they see a man, and they identify the man as one who is paralytic. By the time he reaches the floor, they realize that he is paralyzed. Now, let me speak a word about that ceiling. In biblical times, many of the houses, most of them were built box-shaped. And they didn't have pitch roofs. Most of the time didn't have pitch roofs like we think of today and water draining off. They had flat roofs. And so they would build the house with the stones and the mud would be used for cement. And so they would have their four sides and then they would have wood beams they would put across three to four feet apart. Then they would take lots of limbs and branches and whatever it took uh, to, to kind of lay over a thatch roof. And then they would take a, a tar-like substance and fill in the gaps and they would put some clay. Also, they would use clay in there to make it waterproof. And then they would lay some tile. If you were fortunate enough, you could uh, purchase tile. You would lay tile up there. It was important, the rooftop. They didn't have air conditioning like we do today. And so they, uh, during the summertime, late spring, summer, early fall, many times they'd go up there and sleep at night. Or it'd be used for storage space. Or it'd be used for, for drying clothes. They would have a, a staircase leading up or maybe even a ladder leading up. That's how the men got to the top. They couldn't get in the regular way. There was a crowd they couldn't get. And they were undaunted in their mission. And what I want you to notice about these men is their urgency. The urgency that they had to get to Jesus. 
I, I don't know if they were friends of this man, if, the, if he was their brother and it was five of them and he was a brother that was paralyzed. They could have been friends from childhood. They could have gone to synagogue to study under a rabbi together. They may have played together. They may have worked together. But whatever it was, these men had an urgency to get their friend, their family member to Jesus. And they weren't going to be stopped. Yes, there was a crowd. It would have been tempting to think, oh, well, we failed at this. But someone said, rooftop. And they went to the rooftop and they lowered the man so that Jesus could deal with their paralyzed friend or family member. Folks, there was a sense of urgency in what they were doing. I asked you the question, are you clothed with urgency this morning? Was there an urgency in your life to make sure that you got up and that you dressed and that you got to church today and that you could worship God today? What about the urgency of bringing somebody? Has there been an urgency this week that you had an urgency that, hey, I need to bring somebody. I've got a family member that needs to be here. I've got a friend that needs to be here. Do you have a sense of urgency to bring someone to be a part of the fellowship here, to come in a face-to-face with Jesus at church? Here, think about what was happening in this patch of Scripture. Here was a paralytic man. We don't know how far they had come. Maybe they had to go over all those hills. Maybe they were right there in town. We don't know. But I have a, I have a feeling that maybe they traveled a, a good distance to get their friend to Jesus. And understand this. If it wasn't for the friends, if it wasn't for the family members to get their friend to Jesus, that paralytic probably would have never been with Jesus. If it wasn't for these four men that made sure he got in the presence of Jesus. You and I have family members. You and I have friends. We have some acquaintances. And they are possibly will never have a confrontation with Jesus. They'll never have a situation where they'll be confronted with the gospel and with the truth. Save you have a sense of urgency about getting them into that position to come face to face with Jesus. Do you have that kind of urgency about people? There's a story about uh, uh, a young man named Joseph Miser. Chances are you've never heard of Joseph Miser. Unless you have studied something about the rabies vac- uh, vaccination. vaccination. The, the, the story is that Joseph was bitten by a rabbit dog. And it was during the time, and it happened on July the 6th, 1885. And it just so happened that it was right outside of Paris. And his mother knew about a man who was doing some experimental testing of a vaccine that had to deal with rabies. His name was Louis Pasteur. He lived there in Paris. And so this mother of this little boy, this uh, Joseph Miser, went to Louis Pasteur and begged him to try the vaccine out on, his, on her boy. But the boy, uh, of course, was going through. It was, it was real quick. He was starting to show the signs of, the, of, this, of this fatal disease. And that day you would have died from rabies. But Pasteur was reluctant. And the reason was he was just a microbiologist. He was not a doctor. He was not a licensed physician. 
To have given the boy the vaccine would have been against the law, and if he died, I mean, he would have been charged with, with a criminal offense. But there was something inside of Louis Pasteur that made him take a bold step, and he gave Joseph Miser the vaccine. He gave him a shot 10 days in a row. In a row. And the young man lived. The boy lived. Now, 10 years later, in 1895, Louis Pasteur died. And by that time, he was internationally renowned. He, it was, he was claimed as a wonderful scientist. He, he was a hero. Most of us recognize the name when you buy a, a, a carton of milk, a jug of milk, or whatever. You, you find it pasteurized. That was from Louis Pasteur. Pasteurized milk. So we, he is still... Uh, remembered today for his scientific work. But at his request before his death, he didn't want any of the accomplishments listed on his tombstone. And you can go now to the Louis Pasteur Institute there in Paris, and you will find his tombstone. He only wanted three words. Joseph Miser lived. That's what you'll find on his tombstone. That's what he wanted his legacy to be. Folks, what do you want your legacy to be? We need to be wearing the clothing of, of urgency. Think with me for just a moment. Without looking around, but just thinking, is there anybody in this worship center that is here because of you? Because you brought them to Christ? You brought them to church, and now they're part of the family of God? When you go to Sunday school in a few moments, will there be anybody sitting in your Sunday school class that's there because of you? Because you brought them, you had a sense of urgency, that you wanted them to be a part of what God was doing in his church. We need to be wearing the clothing of urgency. There's another piece of clothing, clothing we need to wear, and that's the clothing of expectancy. The clothing of expectancy. In, in our story, we find these men, these four men, and including... The one that was healed, there was a tremendous amount of expectation on their part. Let's go back to the story. Again, use your imagination because we've got to fill in the gaps here a little bit. What we find is that here, all the attention is on the ceiling. Everything is now quiet. The man has been lowered to the floor. And Jesus, I can imagine, is looking up, smiling in affirmation of what the four men had just done. And he looks down on this paralytic, and I believe he bends down on his knees. He gets real close to this man. I believe he has a conversation with him. I believe he wants to know his name. How long have you been this way? Tell me about the circumstances. Tell me a little bit about your, about your family. I think all that was going on as he was lowered down, and now all the attention is on the young man and on Jesus. And then I can imagine that maybe Jesus pauses and maybe whispers a prayer to his heavenly father and then we read beginning in verse 5 what he had to say when jesus saw their faith he said to the paralyzed man son your sins are forgiven he saw their faith he said to the paralyzed man son your sins are forgiven now notice this he saw their faith. He saw that they all had an expectation. 
But then he said, your sins are forgiven. He didn't forgive the sins of the others because he's bent down. I think he's been talking to the man. And he realizes that this man had saving faith as well. And he looked at him and said, and your sins are forgiven. Please understand, these men were wearing a clothing of expectation they expected jesus to do something they had heard about the healing maybe some of them had been in the crowds and seen jesus healing in that part of of galilee and maybe they thought of their friend the paralytic and now they're bringing him and they had this tremendous expectation that jesus is going to do something but jesus did more than what they bargained for they came just wanting to see their friend healed but in the process, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. When you come to church, is there a sense of expectation of what God is going to do? This morning when you got up, maybe yesterday as you were preparing for today, or this morning, did you come with an expectation that God was going to do something in worship? That God was going to do something through the music that Micah and the praise team and, and the band was going to do for us as they would be used of God. The preaching of the word, prayer, scripture, uh, at the invitation time. Is there an expectation that God's going to do something? When you go to Sunday school this morning, will you be going with a sense of expectation that something's going to happen, that God's going to speak to his word, and that you're going to be responding, whether publicly or privately, you're going to be responding to the word, that something's going to happen and change you, and there's going to be a blessing, and maybe there's conviction as well. But is there, a, is there an expectation that God is going to do something? Folks, this is the kind of clothing we need to wear every time that we're coming into God's presence, into God's house, that God wants to do something great amongst us. And here these five, the four who carried him, the one who was paralytic, they had the clothing of expectation when they came in the presence of Jesus. Now let's continue the story beginning in verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves... Now, let's just stop there for just a moment. Verse 6. Teachers of the law. The, these, are the, these are the official preachers. This is the, the Nicodemus types. Those who were the theologians. Those who were the preachers, the formal preachers of the word of God. They were there. The book of Luke tells us there were also Pharisees. There were about 6,000 of those Pharisees that were spread all over Israel. And so... Luke tells us of this account in Luke 5 that there were some Pharisees. They're, they're, they, they've intermingled amongst the crowd. They were sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, verse 7, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive Jesus but God alone? Now remember by this time, the religious leaders, all of them, whether it be Pharisees or the teachers of the law, the priests, whatever, they're looking for a way to, to trap Jesus. They're looking for a way to discredit him. He's becoming popular. They're jealous um, and at all of this that's going on. And, and so they're, they're looking to trap him, and they talk about blasphemy. The blasphemy, hey, he's claiming to, to have healed, so something, something is wrong uh, when it comes to forgiveness of sin. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? What a surprise it must have been to them that Jesus knew even their hearts, was, knew what was going on in their minds, what their conclusions were. Then verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, 
are to say, get up and take your mat and walk. I mean, that is a, a big point Jesus is trying to make it. Which is easier? The point is, neither one is easy because both of them require miracles. To heal someone physically, that would be visible. To heal somebody spiritually, that would be invisible. Both of them would take miracles. So neither one of them were easy when it came to man. Easy for Jesus, but not for man. Verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, and that was Jesus' most popular way of referring to himself, was the Son of Man, emphasizing his humanity, fully God, fully man, has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he said unto them, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now here Jesus is confronting these, these religious leaders, and they had a choice to make. Either follow Jesus and believe that he not only can heal, and that wasn't a surprise to them. They had, they had heard, maybe even seen Jesus heal, but this was the first time that Jesus had talked about forgiveness of sin. So that wasn't too hard, but now they, they had a tough choice. See, Jesus knew that part of their, part of their prejudice, part of their bias, and, and it was really bad teaching, it was bad theology, they saw a connection between sin and sickness. You must be sick because you've sinned. That was their thinking. It was wrong, but that was their thinking. If you're sick, it's because you've sinned. So Jesus is throwing at them, okay, if, if sin has caused, caused this, I have forgiven him of sin, therefore I've proved it by healing him. And so now they're trapped. So either they believe he is the Son of God, he, they believe that, that what he said he had the authority to do, and he did it, are to disbelieve the whole thing. They are put on the hot seat. They now had a choice they had to make. And so what did Jesus do? He, he proved he had all of this authority. He proved not only could he heal, not only could he preach, but he had the power, the authority to forgive Sin. So let's stop just for a moment and think. Why was it that Jesus wanted to heal this man physically and spiritually? Well, one of the main reasons that Jesus did what he did was because he knew the effect of sin. He knew the effect of sin. He knows uh, what sin does to us. First, our relationship with God. We are separated from God. Okay, because of our sin. And not only are we separated from God, it separates us from each other. We've all been at odds at some time with a family member, with a friend, with someone. And because of their sin, because of our sin, whatever it may be. So Jesus understood that. But it also creates problems with ourselves as well. We'll talk about that in a minute. So Jesus understood that's why he wanted to heal him physically and spiritually because he knew the effect of sin sin does something that causes us to have some terrible attitudes sin, sin will cause us to to puff up in pride and we want to be god we want to control we want to have our way done in this world and so he understood all of those all of those situations that about sin itself but also not only did he understand how sin affects us he knew that he wanted to forgive because that's the only way back to God. It's the only way that we're ever going to have fellowship with God and a relationship with God is to have that sin 
forgiven, that rebellion in our life. Listen to these passages of scriptures. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Think about that, what he's saying here. We are freed from the slavery of sin because of what Jesus did. And because of that, we now have this freedom to come before God. We would have never had it if it wasn't for what Jesus did for us on the cross. Paul would, would say it in a different way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. We talked about that last Sunday morning. So here, the bottom line is this. We have this relationship with God because of what Jesus did. When he looked at the man, he saw that was his greatest need. The greatest need wasn't that to be, feel, be healed from being paralyzed. His greatest need was that he had a paralyzed spirit. And so he wanted him to experience forgiveness of sin. And to prove his authority, he healed him physically as well. That's what God wants to do for all of us. See, the greatest legacy of Christianity is not that we can have love and that we can have peace. And we have joy in our life. The greatest legacy of our Christian faith is we can have forgiveness. That you are forgiven of your sin. And you can now have freedom. Part of the words you saw in one of our songs was about that very thing. That there is a freedom that we now experience. We're free from that. And that burden and that guilt. But that leads me to another statement. There... There can be a connection with your sin and how you're responding physically. Because some of us are carrying some burdens of guilt and of shame and some other things and we won't let it go. And it can hurt us physically. There's some arthritis that is caused by this. Uh, insomnia, ulcers. There are a number of physical ailments that we can experience in our life. Now, don't get me wrong. There are people that have arthritis and ulcers and insomnia and may not even connected to anything about sin in their life. But sin, when we fail to take that to God and take our sin before him, even as Christians, then we can be burdened down. It will affect us spiritually if we don't deal with the sin before God. Or we release it with other people. Bitterness and hatred and anger. All those things that can, be, that can fill our hearts and our lives can draw us back. Now, we don't want to be simplistic about this. It's not that our sin causes all the illnesses. That's not right. There are some wonderful people. This pandemic proves that. There's some wonderful people that have gotten the virus or maybe even died. And they were fine, godly people. It wasn't because of sin. It wasn't because of sin that this happened for their lives. But it is because there was sin someplace where that virus started and came into the world and we became innocent victims of it. So don't be simplistic by saying, hey, their, their, sin is, their sickness is because of some sin in their life. No, that would be totally wrong. Now let's review for just a moment. There's, a, there's the need for urgency as we come before the Heavenly Father. And before we come to church, we need to wear the clothing of urgency. 
We need to have a sense of bringing people into the very presence of Jesus and lowering their palate before Jesus and let Jesus bring spiritual healing to their hearts and then any other kind of healing he wants them to experience. There needs to be the, the clothing of expectation that when we come, we're expecting that God is going to do something in our lives and the lives of other people that we will want to celebrate that. And that leads me to the third piece of clothing, and that's the clothing of enthusiasm. The clothing of enthusiasm. Look at verse 12. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. What a sight that must have been. This man being obedient to the Lord. He had been forgiven of his sin. And now he's being told, take up your mat, I'm going to heal you. And he got up, took his mat, mat and walked out in full view of them all. These, this was amazing. It, this amazed everybody. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. There was a sense of enthusiasm as the people saw what was going on. It was one thing to see the ceiling broken up and the man brought in. They were amazed at that, maybe scared there for a moment. But when the man picked up his mat and walked out, they're praising God. They're amazed. They had never seen anything like this before. There was enthusiasm as they had come to church, as they were worshiping. There was an enthusiasm that came about because in the presence of God, God did something. We've all been there. Services. Maybe some special music. Maybe, maybe a Christmas presentation, an Easter presentation. Unexpectedly, God showed up in our midst. But I'm going to tell you what, most of the time God shows up in our midst when our hearts are prepared. When we come to church with a sense of urgency and we're bringing people. When we come to church with a sense of expectancy that God's going to do something. And then we get more than we ever bargained for. can only imagine what those people experience. Some of us, many of us have been blessed to see what God has done through the years. And we desire for God to do it again. And he will do it again. As you come with an urgency when you come with expectancy God's going to bless you with enthusiasm because he's going to show up and do something we never bargained on now let's close this out this morning which which group of people do you identify with is there someone here that would identify with the paralyzed man well I want to tell you Jesus is in the house this morning Jesus is right here this morning and if you've come with a paralyzed spirit and you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, he wants to bend down right where you are in your pew right now, just like he's sitting next to you. And he wants to talk with you like he did the paralytic man. And all he's going to say is, hey, I'm here for you. Your part is you need to ask forgiveness of your rebellion against my God, my Father. You ask forgiveness. And you invite me to enter your life. You surrender your life to me. And I will heal your spirit. Jesus is in the house today. He will do that right now. Maybe there's something else in your life where you need healing. I don't know what that would be. There may be something physically. He may choose to do that. There may be something about some sin in your life. There's some guilt or shame or whatever. And you just need to give it over to him and let it go. He'll bring healing into your life this morning. Jesus is in the house.
Maybe you're one of the four men. Praise God if you're one of the four men and you have that sense of urgency and you've been bringing people and you want to bring people, you want to do more for the Lord, then thank God for that. Maybe you're one of the religious leaders. For some reason, whatever, your heart is just not right with God at the moment and you're like one of those religious leaders. Instead of helping Jesus out, you're working against Jesus. And you may be some of the crowd. Notice the crowd wouldn't let them in. And that can happen even in church. But sometimes we can crowd people out to getting to Jesus by our attitudes, by our Pharisee, Phariseeism. Or maybe there's someone here and you are in the crowd and you're trying to move toward Jesus yourself. He is here for you. He'll receive you. Closing story. I've always enjoyed reading about C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Many of you know that he is one of the, the greatest men that God had ever called in ministry and one of the greatest preachers. And all of us, especially of my generation, we've loved reading him, loved studying about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He pastored the Metropolitan Church in the mid to late 19th century. It was in 1887 that those who've studied Spurgeon's school uh, church and, and studied his sermons and everything about his ministry, they believe that was the turnaround for Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London, that that was the year. And they believe it started when he preached from this passage of Scripture. He, he preached uh, a sermon called Sitting By. And as he was preaching along, he, he likened Christians that were in his congregation like these religious leaders. These religious leaders were sitting by, and they were causing problems for Jesus. They were in the way. And he likened Christians in his church. He said, some of you are just sitting by. You're not helping at all. And I would just as soon you not come back and not take up a pew. Now, people were had a hard time finding seats in that church. And they had multiple services. He said, I just soon you not be here. If you're going to be against Jesus, you're going to be against what we're doing in this church. I just soon you give up your pew and don't even come back. Come back. And he ended the sermon. That week, hundreds of his church members came to him and said, Pastor, I don't want to be one of those sitting by. I want to be like those four men. And when next Sunday came, Charles Spurgeon was not prepared for what he experienced. It was as if his whole congregation were like the four men, and they started bringing people with them to church. Hundreds were saved that next Sunday, and a great revival broke out that lasted for many years, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, because people decided... They weren't going to sit by any longer. Let's pray. God, what would, what would it be like if we stopped just sitting by? If we would get out and do what we need to do in bringing people, having a sense of urgency, and then we ourselves have a spirit of expectation so that we can experience enthusiasm. So, Father, I pray for us right now I pray that if there's someone here like the paralytic, they're paralyzed in their spirit, that they would call upon you 
and simply through a prayer. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Savior and Lord. I surrender my life. I believe you died on the cross. You were buried. You rose again. While I don't understand lots of things, Lord, I understand this right now. I need to surrender. Maybe there's someone here this morning and you're praying a prayer like that. It's the beginning. It's not the end. It's just the beginning of the wonderful life that God has for you. Waiting, if you'll just open. Maybe there's somebody paralyzed when it comes to some other area of your life. You can take it to the Lord today. Some guilt, some shame, some bitterness, some anger, some hatred. Give it up. Jesus wants to redeem you of that right now as a Christian. He wants you just to give it up. Give it over to him. Renew yourself before him. And then I pray for those of us who need to have a sense of expectations. It's easy for all of us. It is easy, Lord, for us to come before your presence and, and same routine, coming in and out. And Father, forgive us for not having a sense of hope and expectancy with what you want to do in our lives. And Father, we do desire that enthusiasm, that joy, more than just having our feelings pumped up because of the music and a message, but truly to see what you can do in our presence. We come expecting and we given more than we could ever bargain for. Therefore, we have enthusiasm in your presence. So Father, bless us, whatever is needed in our life right now, to just fill us with your spirit and guide us and direct us in the way that we should go. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.